joy to be able to be together tonight, and I'm thankful for uh, missionaries. And just last week, we had a, an opportunity to meet a young man named John Mark Miraflora. He's got a Spanish last name from the Philippines, going to Cambodia, all right? So he's truly international, and we had lunch with him today. Just a real joy to get to meet him, hear his testimony of what God has done. And I've invited him to come and just share a little bit about the field of Cambodia, his call there, and a little bit about uh, as God leads him. So, uh, Brother John Mark, would you please come uh, up here? This, this, yeah, come on up. And uh, we'll turn this service over to you here as you share just your, uh, your ministry this, morning, this evening. I uh, have a video. Okay, great. Yes, you go first. Maybe we could start with the video. Uh, good evening. Good evening. Uh, so uh, my name is John Mark Miraflor, and I'm from the Philippines. Praise the Lord for American missionaries. My parents are products of that, and uh, we were sent from the Philippines to Cambodia, and I'm actually a second generation. So I was born in the Philippines, but we moved to Cambodia in 1997. We'll see a little bit of that in the video, if we could cue that up, and then I'll talk more about it.
That is the greeting in Cambodia. It means hello, how is everybody? So my father first went to Cambodia on a survey trip, and this was in 1996. And he was standing right where the mass killings in the killing fields, where there were many mass graves all around. And if you're aware of that story, about two to three million people were killed. And the population during that time was only 12 to 13 million, and that's almost a quarter of the population when that happened in the mid-70s. And so when my father was standing in the killing fields and it started to rain, because these were mass graves, when the rain would fall and the topsoil would wash off, these bones started coming out of the ground. And it was at that moment my father thought of Ezekiel and these dry bones and that they could live. And so God put this burden in his heart to become a missionary to Cambodia. So as soon as he got back to the Philippines, he, he told everybody, I'm going to be a missionary to Cambodia. Everybody was excited, everybody at the church, except for my mom. We had to pray for her a little bit on that one, for her to accept that. But she came around, and so uh, everybody at the church knew we were going to be missionaries to Cambodia. And at that time, I was still five years old. And so as a five-year-old kid, I would come to church. Everybody, uh, everybody on staff knew that we were going to go to Cambodia, and they would ask me, one at a time, are you ready to go to Cambodia? And I thought, hmm, Cambodia, sure. I felt like we were just going out of town, out of state, and we're just going to come back later on. I didn't know it meant something more than that, much farther. And every week, somebody, somebody else would ask me. I just brushed it off. I said, yeah, I'm ready to go to Cambodia. But one day, I brought a toy to church. I don't know if that's allowed in church or not, but I brought a toy with me. And then the question suddenly changed. A church member asked me, are you ready to share this toy? with other kids in Cambodia. And at that moment, I took it more seriously. As an only child, I had a problem with sharing. And so I started thinking about that a little more, like why are we going to Cambodia? Why do I have to share my toys with these children? And so when we got home that, that day, I asked my mom, like, why, why are we going? What's going on? And that's when she explained to me that we, we're going there to share to them about Jesus. They need to know about Jesus, that they're lost, that they're sinners, and they need to be saved. They need to accept Jesus in their heart to be saved. And at that moment, I realized I didn't have Jesus in my heart yet. And so that, on that day, on that night, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And this was a month right before we went to the mission field. When we got to the mission field, our first ministry was in Phnom Penh, which was at the city. And we started with just English lessons and Bible classes. And uh, eventually, God blessed us with two acres of land. God bless God blessed us during that time. And when we, when we moved outside of the city, just an hour away into Kandal province, we planted a church over there. And we saw a big need with these children, as you've seen in the children's home. And with that children's home, you, can, you can't really see, but there are still scars from the killing fields. But these are, these are invisible scars. But the, these scars are still apparent in these children. Because when the killing fields happened, a lot of the people were killed. A lot of whoever was educated, whoever was influential, whoever could basically influence anyone and cause a rebellion, they were killed right away. If you, if you had glasses on, you were from a well, better off family. You were killed right then and there. The only ones who were left were anyone that was just within the working class. And so during this period, we had a lot of children that were orphaned. And then when these orphan kids would grow up and would start their own families, if it didn't work out, they just split. They had this mentality that, oh, I grew up without parents. My kids will be fine. 
And this is a, this is a cycle that we're trying to break at, at this moment, up to this day. This is uh, 30 years later, three decades later, and we are still seeing a lot of this situations in these, in these children's lives. And so we are feeding them, we are clothing them, we are, we are educating them, and we're taking care of them in this ministry. But eventually, we saw the need for their education because uh, if the literacy rate is very low and kids were just moving up a grade because they were getting bigger, not because they were actually passing their classes, passing their exams. And so we saw the need, we need to educate these children. We need to teach them. Uh, growing up, I didn't really want to become a teacher. It's not something I aspired to be, maybe because I didn't ha really have a good relationship with my teacher. By the way, I was homeschooled. But we, were, we got over that, we were okay. We're much better now, after I graduated. But then, the first opportunity for, for me to get a job was to become a teacher. And I finished music back in West Coast Baptist College. I studied music and Bible, and I thought, okay, I'll make an exception for music. And so I applied to become a music teacher, but then they gave me a preschool teaching position. And I'm like, this is not what I asked for. But guess what? I actually fell in love with it. I actually enjoyed it. And it was a blessing for a season because I was able to work and support the ministry and then do ministry on the weekends. But eventually God was starting to call me into full-time missions. And so I thought, okay, why would you put me in a position that I didn't want in the first place, and now that when I'm in starting to enjoy teaching, now you're gonna take me away from it. But what I didn't realize what was, as, as soon as I finished my contract as a teacher, we started our own school. And so God had that planned out all along. So we have a children's home, we have a Christian school apart from church planting, and we also have a little farm, like you said, uh, faith, if you couldn't read it, we, we call it food always in the house. And so we, always, we would uh, show the people how to take care of just even just a small piece of land and how to sustain yourself through that. And we've made it, uh, it, it's helped us make efficient use of our resources in the ministry. And even through COVID, we were even able to share our resources when the lockdown started to happen. And so this is kind of the model that we have right now for each of our future church plants. And we are working in two other locations. And I just want to share what, about our one outreach that we are working at right now, which, is, which was a ministry that was near and dear to my father's heart. So during our early years, we would have church. And there was a couple that stayed behind at the end of church. And they asked, could we join the church? And in Cambodia, church wasn't a normal thing. And, no, and if people came, you know, we're like, yes, come to church. Nobody really asked permission to come to church. But this couple was asking to, be, to come to church. And the reason was they had HIV. They were infected with AIDS. And because during that time, medicine wasn't as great as we have it now, they were excommunicated. They were treated as lepers during that time. And so we actually, when they joined the church, we actually lost some members. And so my father thought, we're going to start a church just for them. So my father started visiting their hospice. And, and what, this is actually a very draining ministry. Because every two weeks, we would, every week and every other week, we would lose someone. It would be a funeral after funeral. But what was cool was our numbers never went down. In fact, we even grew. Because they were so hopeless in, these, in this sickness that they had. When they found out that they could be saved, that they have hope in Jesus, people just started coming. 
And so that's a ministry that grew so much. And now they're actually in a better position because of the, uh, they have better medicine from that the, uh, they're gaining today, they're getting at this time. Eventually, the government moved them towards the outside of the city. And we followed them. This is actually one of the outreaches we're working at now. And I just want to share a little bit of a blessing. Well, actually, it's a big blessing. A couple years ago, God blessed us with a property in that area, in that ministry. But through COVID in 2020, we were able to raise funds to build a building for that ministry. And so construction started in January. I'm, we are looking to finish in the next month or two, and I'm excited by the time I get back, it'll be finished. So I just wanted to share something to pray about, because we are currently working in three different locations. And so with three simultaneous ministries, we are in need of a, of a vehicle, a ministry vehicle. And we are transporting ministry teams, members, and students, and even resources between these three locations. And for that, we're actually looking to raise $20,000. But then, I, as I can see here with all the flags up, I'm so blessed to see how, uh, how this church loves missions. And it's truly a blessing. And I just wanted to encourage you guys more. That if you give towards mission, if you go, give towards your church, towards a special project, the Lord's going to bless you. But if you make that commitment to give regularly and to grow this commitment, the Lord's going to bless you even more. Every little bit that you give... Two missions goes towards reaching these children who are from broken families, goes towards these people who have HIV AIDS, who are, who are excommunicated from their community. And I just want to thank you for that. And as, as Paul was talking to the Philippians about, about giving, he says in Philippians 4, verse 17, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. And I truly believe this church has a great account because of your giving to missions. And so we'll have a table in the back. I would love to answer any and all of your questions about Cambodia. And if you, if you would like to have an even greater part, if you'd like to come to Cambodia, I would really love to help you on that. If you want to arrange a mission trip, that would truly be a blessing, of course, once the borders open up again. And, and so uh, I have a card as well, so please pick up a card and uh, remember to pray for us, the Miraflores, myself and my parents before me, your missionaries to Cambodia. Thank you. John, don't go too far. All right, so tonight uh, we're looking at Buddhism. So come, come on, you can just have a seat right there. I asked him because Cambodia is made up uh, of, what did you say, 96% Buddhists? 97. 97% of people who live there. Now, there are two different types of Buddhism, uh, but, uh, and they deal with primarily one type. So I've just asked him uh, if he would just come on, come on back up, and uh, we're just, just kind of get our, our minds going here. How many of you know anything about Buddhism? A couple of you, good, good. What do you know? I see, see some hands. About this much, you know this much. All right, Brother Dylan. All right, good. That's right, that's right. Uh, anybody know anything else? So there's a hand back there. I didn't see it. I'm sorry. Man-made idols. Man-made idols. Yes, yes. In Chinese restaurants. You'll see the the American version of the uh, of Buddha. Uh, there is an American version and then a, another version of Buddha there. Uh, and so what else do you know? Anybody else? Yes, Sister Rhonda. They don't mind the big belly on the Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, all right, good. All right, yes, sir, brother. So don't they give offerings to uh, people that have passed on? Like they can be reincarnated. Yes. 
Okay, I'm good. I didn't know. I didn't read yes, that. Yes, yes. So they offer good. incenses. Um, they have uh, altars inside their house, and they also have spirit houses outside of their house. Right. Good. So, brother, brother John Mark, could you tell us a little bit about the history of Buddhism? Uh, what you what what you've studied because you've learned you've, you've since you were five, 24 years or so. <laughs> You have been there, immersed in that culture. So share, share with us, if you will, the history of Buddhism. Okay, for, from what I remember, from what I've studied, uh, Buddhism has actually broke off from Hinduism. Correct. So the, one of the um, places in Cambodia, the Angkor Wat, which is in Siem Reap, it's one of the wonders of the world, it was previously a Hindu temple, and then it transitioned into Buddhism. So they're actually quite close, closely related, and a lot of things overlap. But what I'm noticing in the culture right now in Cambodia, they're actually not very familiar with all of uh, everything that's about Buddhism. They're not very devout Buddhism, but they are very strong on their traditions. And so when, when there would be family gatherings, there would be special events, the f uh, they would go home to their families and they, they may go home to the, to the provinces like a reunion and whatnot, and they would always go to the temple. So now they wouldn't necessarily be uh, very well versed in the Buddhism, but then they would do these practices. And so we would even have some Christians, some newly con converted Christians, when, when they would go back home for these holidays, because they've, they've done this all their lives, when they would go back home, they would join their family into these temples. And they would just have a picnic, just gather, fellowship. Um, some of the family would offer incenses, they would pray. So now for the new convert, they would, maybe they wouldn't pray, okay? If they understood and they, what what they believe in and they and they stood uh, they stood for that, but then if they started to not join them in these situations, then it would be quite difficult. Mm -hmm. They would they could get persecuted. They could be excommunicated. It's not as bad as Muslims where their life is threatened, mm -hmm. but then it's it's very difficult because anything that happens bad or wrong in their lives, the family would just say, "Oh, it's because you don't believe." in our traditions anymore. It's because you've given those up. Okay, good. So uh, as, as you've been ministering there, because the whole purpose of this series for us mm -hmm. is so that we could learn to share Christ with mm -hmm. people who are, have a different belief system. Yes. And so what has been the most effective way that y'all have found to be able to share Christ with people who are uh, from a Buddhist background? Good question, yes. So Buddhism is mainly works-based, as, as are most cults and other religions. And so when you tell them, because that's why they believe in reincarnation, they have to be a good person so they have a better life. If they're a bad person in this life, they're going to be like an insect in the next life or some, basically a very terrible, miserable life. And so if they're having a miserable life now, it's because they had a bad life previously. So it's all about works for them. So when you explain that salvation is not through works, it's by grace because there's a God that loves them despite their sin, despite the things that they, the mistakes they've made, that, that pierces them a little bit. Amen. And that's, that's one of the best ways we've, we've managed to, uh, to approach them, to reach them with the gospel. Amen. Good. Anybody have any other questions for Brother John Mark? Yeah, Sister Linda.
Yes, yes. Um, it's very strong because, again, tradition and everybody in the family would, would follow that tradition, would do it together. They're quite, you know, um, their activities are always include the family, and which is, which is great in churches as well and how yes. we reach the family. We have to keep the family together when we're, when we're coming to church. And yes, that is, that is very difficult. They would have a Buddha and um, yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that question. No, yeah. no problem. All right. Well, John, Mark, thank you very much for your help Thanks, here sir. in that regard. Uh, just, just neat to have you as here for tonight. So thank yes. you a bunch. Well, I would love to answer more questions if you have any um, at the table after service. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, join me in First John chapter number one. What I want to do tonight is I'm going to give you a little bit more background uh, for you because I think even understanding how this started is going to help you understand the mindset of people as we witness to them. Uh, and so First John chapter one and verse number four, I love what John writes here in this epistle as he says, "And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full." Now, what we have learned through the Scripture is that through Christ, we can experience fullness of joy. Amen? Uh, and that's something that was actually the beginning and what caused uh, Buddha or uh, Guatama uh, to start his search for, uh, for a, an answer to the question. And his start, it all started with this, this, this conundrum, uh, and that is, why is there evil in the world? And so his whole search began with that. And so it's about six centuries, even before Christ walked the earth, this young man is said to have escaped all the trappings of materialism, and he found the path to enlightenment. And so we see that he was known as Buddha, he was called, which is the enlightened one, and he left behind a formula for others to be able to help them trace this the same path to nirvana, okay? So and kind of very similar, as Brother John Mark said, very similar to Hindu, Hinduism as we studied last week. But these t teachings uh, that, that he began, they were never written down until 400 years later. And so a lot of the things that, that he taught were passed down uh, just, just by verbal tradition and, and of those, the, those uh, methods. And so though it's one of the oldest surviving global religions, it's, uh, it is also one that is very fluid as well. It's one of the fastest growing religions today uh, as well because they have uh, about 613 million adherents worldwide. And, and this makes it uh, really one of the largest blocks of people groups is people who adhere to, uh, to uh, Buddhism. And what have we seen is the Western world has become infatuated with this as well. Matter of fact, uh, there's a lot of high-profile converts. Uh, for example, uh, sports personalities like Tiger Woods, uh, David Beckham, and Phil Jackson, who was an M NBA coach, uh, they've, they've all followed after this. Or Jerry Brown, who was the former governor of uh, California, uh, other guys like uh, Steve Jobs, Rosa Parks, and then even uh, former President Bill Clinton, who was not, who's not a, a, a Buddhist, but he's adopted uh, a lot of their practices, like a vegan diet. He's uh, had a, uh, a Buddhist monk to tutor him on proper meditation techniques and things like that. And then we see the Dalai Lama has been given uh, really almost like rock star status here in America uh, by a lot of different people. And so we see that, that this has made a big inroad in our nation. Uh, we have a Buddhist temple here in Springfield, Missouri. I'm not sure if you're aware of that on the northwest uh, side of Springfield here. Uh, and, and I think that has to do because cashew chicken originated here. <laughs> Sorry, bad joke. 
But let me just say uh, that Los Angeles is one of the, uh, been called one of the most diverse Buddhist city in the world. And so, uh, so we see Hollywood elites uh, like uh, Richard Greer, Keanu Reeves, uh, Tina Turner, Harrison Ford, some of those guys. Even if you're a Star Wars fan, George Lucas. Now, quite honestly, he was very transparent in his agenda in the Star Wars movies to introduce Buddhism to the West. The Force symbolizes the uh, impersonal energy of the Eastern mysticism. And so, you know, we could go on and on and on, but there, we just see that there's very obviously this made its, its way into our culture and into our society. And so let's very quickly, let me just give you a little bit more of a background. And I appreciate, I kind of put him on the spot tonight. He didn't come prepared to talk about Buddhism necessarily. Uh, but uh, So I appreciate you, you playing with me. That was fun. That was, that was great. Had a good time. But, but as we look at this, Guatama, who is his name, and I might be saying that wrong. Did I say it right? Gautama. Yeah, see what he said. <laughs> Gautama. Yeah, okay. See, when you've got to put a Texas slang on it, it has a little different wang to it. Guatama's father was the ruler over a district in the Himalayas, and he sheltered his son from the outside world by confining him to the palace, and he gave him everything he wanted. There was uh, legends that go back and said he had 40,000 uh, women that danced for him and all kinds of different things. And in this palace, he just enjoyed great wealth, great pleasures. But one day, he, on, on some sort of a trip outside the palace, he saw four things that would forever change his life. There was an old man... There was a sick man, a dead man, and a wandering monk who seemed content. And so all of these things really bothered him. He, he had no a real uh, eye-opening reality in his life previously. And so he saw these things and he couldn't understand. And so he left this lap of luxury and he left the palace life and he began in, uh, to a quest in search of the answers to this pain and suffering that he had seen. And so he left his wife and he left his son behind because they were uh, distractions for his quest. Now, that may answer some of the reason why there's so much, so much fatherless and motherless, uh, motherlessness going on in, in Cambodia today. And so he's, he went and he found uh, and studied the Hindu scriptures. He learned from Brahma priests. And, and listen, he grew up, uh, listened to them, but he got disillusioned with them. And so he devoted himself to a new type of extreme uh, life. And he just, uh, just neglected everything. I don't think that the, the big fat Buddha is a good de depiction. I think that's a, probably a Western depiction of it because he was very much, uh, he walked everywhere. He didn't, he was very, uh, uh, had a, a life of asceticism or he had a life where he just very rigid in everything that he did. It didn't allow a lot of, uh, of luxuries into his life. And so again, he couldn't find peace. And so one day he just sat under a uh, Bodai tree or, or what is that kind of tree there? Do you know? I don't, I don't know how to say it exactly. I appreciate having somebody who knows what these th how they're pronounced. But he sat under that tree and he just sat there and meditated until he received enlightenment. That was what he was looking for. And that night he wrestled and struggled with a lot of thoughts and he progressed through trances and, and varying stages of consciousness. Probably what it was is he was hungry. Uh, 
but he realized his final goal uh, that he was seeking. And this enlightenment, uh, Guatama believed, gave him responsibility of spreading the good news to people everywhere. And so he began to tell others about his experience. Uh, he gained an audience in India, and two and a half centuries after his death, a council of Buddhist monks collected all of his teachings that they could remember and traditions into written form in, in uh, uh, Tripitaka. Is that? Yeah, he says, I don't know. All right, so I don't either. I don't know how to say it. He's probably listening to my Texas slang and saying, Brother, you are way off base, brother. But let me just say, that just quite honestly, within three centuries, his views spread throughout the entire continent of Asia. And so Buddha, as Guatama would forever be known, never claimed to be deity. But 700 years after his death, his followers considered him God and began to worship him as such. And that's why we see him in the little statues in the shops and different places. And there's a little, a little version of it there on the slide tonight. But, but Buddhism today is divided into two major traditions, and Theravada, or Theravada, however you say that, is what's prevalent in Cambodia. Uh, and there's uh, Maya, uh, Maya Nan, uh, yeah, not banana, M-A-H-A-Y-A-N-A. -A -A. So these two, these two uh, regions here, and, and though it was founded in India, Buddhism claims less than 1% of its population in India. And so uh, most Americans, though, were familiar with uh, uh, different types of Buddhism, spe specifically Zen Buddhism, which was really come out of Japan, because Zen Buddhists emphasized the personal enlightenment facet of the religion, uh, and they're known for their infatuation with meditation and other New Age uh, practices like yoga. And so Buddhists, this sect that, that is becoming increasingly common in America is, is Shin Buddhism, and Shin Buddhism originated with the Japanese and has, uh, and has came with the immigrants here. And so let me just go over very quickly some basic beliefs because the single question that sparked the inception of all of Buddhism is no different than the question that a lot of people have today is why do bad things happen to good people? And people want to know that. And people get turned off from God. Why, If God is such a good and loving God, why are bad things happening to good people? And so Gautama, who accepted the Hindu belief of reincarnation, also sought to answer this second question, how could one break the endless rebirth cycle of reincarnation? He wanted off the roller coaster. And quite honestly, if I believed that I had been alive for thousands and thousands of years and I conjured up some kind of made-up backstory, then I would also be sick of it too. But there's, there's a couple of major doctrines that they, that they hold to. And they're referred to as the Four Noble Truths. And so tonight's message was called the Noble Truths. And then also the Eightfold Path. And so let's talk about very quickly salvation. Because according to Buddhist belief, mankind is worthless, possessing only a temporary and meaningless existence. And humans are not sinners. They have a spark of divine truth inherent within themselves uh, and they are not a unique part of creation because every living being in nature contains the same divine spark. So the Buddhist then believes that people are fully capable of reaching nirvana due to their own efforts. And this is what you were talking about a while ago. It's all works-based, and we'll see this in this eightfold path that they, that they want to follow. And so the Four Noble Truths for the, uh, the foundation uh, are, first off, the first noble truth is that of uh, all life is suffering. Boy, that sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? 
Birth is painful, death is painful, and the years between birth and death are painful. So to exist on earth means to encounter suffering. And that's why I'm so thankful that 1 John 1, 4 says, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. This is the message of Jesus. The message of Buddha, Buddha says, listen, all life, it, it just stinks to live and, it, and, and living stinks. The second truth is that all suffering is caused by desire. So the human craving for wealth, happiness, and other forms of selfish enjoyment are the root causes of all of your suffering. It's all your fault. So regardless of how diligent you are, these selfish desires will never be satisfied because they're rooted in human ignorance. So the path out is enlightenment. Third one is that overcoming, uh, the, that overcoming desire is the cure for suffering. So human suffering then will only cease if and when individuals overcome their urges and cravings for wealth, health, and happiness. And all who achieve this quenching uh, of desire reach nirvana. And finally, the last one is the, uh, is the extinguishing of all desire by following the eightfold path. And so Buddhists believe that this eightfold path uh, will eventually reach nirvana uh, by self-enlightenment. And so this path embodies three qualities, the mind, uh, the wisdom, excuse me, wisdom, morality, and meditation. So let's look at this very quick. Uh, first off, step one is having the right views. You must accept the four noble truths, bottom line. Step two, have the right resolve. You must renounce all selfish desires and thoughts such as cruelty, anger, lust, and must not harm any living creature. Step three, you must speak only truth. There's no lying, uh, no slander, nor, no, no maligning speech, none of those things. Step four, right behavior. So abstain from killing, from stealing, sexual misconduct, evil acts, and intoxicants. All of these things together. Step five is a right occupation. So abstain from evil ways of living and must work in a vocation that benefits those around you and harms no one. Uh, steps number six is right effort. So you must seek to eliminate evil qualities within and prevent new ones from arising. And you must also develop good qualities within like love and compassion for all things and grow maturity, maturity until universal love is attained. Step seven, right contemplation. You must recognize that all things pertaining to this world are impertinent and, uh, impermanent and decaying. You must also strive to become detached from worldly concerns and temptations. Step eight is the right meditation. So you must shape, your, shape the mind by meditation in order to overcome any sensation of pleasure or pain and enter a state of transcending consciousness and attain a state of perfection. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for Jesus right about now. I'm so thankful that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What, is it, what do they believe about God? The concept of a personal God does not fit into their doctrine at all. Many Buddhists worship uh, Buddha today, and it's clear that they, even though it's clear that he never claimed to be divine, but generally Buddhists are uh, pantheistic. They view God as an impersonal force that is comprised of all living things and, he, and holds the universe together. So, uh, so while they don't uh, deny the existence of Jesus Christ, they would openly admit that Jesus was a great teacher who along with Buddha 
uh, attained enlightenment and led followers down the path of enlightenment. But here's the other thing. They deny the reality of His resurrection. They deny the fact that He offers salvation from sin and they strongly reject His claim to be God. They cannot accept that at all. So very quickly... They're just some very basic things about what, about what they believe. And they're, they're, listen, the list is long. I've, I read so much on Buddhism today, it's oozing out of my ears, I'm thinking tonight. But I want to share with you a little bit about God's truth. Dr. Manfred Krober, uh, uh, he was a former professor at Faith Baptist College, describes grace as the unmerited and uh, unmeritable favor of God. Others maybe have sought, I defined it as God giving sinners what they need rather than what they deserve. Listen, I think both of these are, are good in that they carry the idea that God's blessing and favor in sinners uh, it, it lives in, uh, is both unearned and unmerited. Listen, for Buddhists, grace is a foreign concept because uh, God's favor cannot be earned. There's nothing any human can do to earn or merit salvation. We know these verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In fact, and while we were yet sinners, is that Christ died for us. Amen? He bore our shame. He paid our debt. He absorbed our wrath in Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Listen, all who put their faith in Christ uh, in, uh, as will, will be saved. Apart from works, there's not works uh, involved in this because Titus 3, 5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Aren't you thankful? Man, I, I don't know about you, but I know me and I'm thankful that God has, has offered salvation free and clear of anything dependent upon me outside of my faith in Him. But the Buddhist idea of the afterlife is nirvana. All it is is a freedom from existence. That's all it is. How bleak is that? There, there's, there's, for them, there's no objective proof uh, of, of freedom beyond the grave. There's, no, no, there's nothing, there's no hope in tomorrow in, in this, this cycle of reincarnation. There's, the only release you could ever hope to have is for it to stop. But I love what Jesus said in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Amen. And he goes on and he says, And whither I go, the way you know. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the new way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. You see, that's the difference. There's a major difference in this, this hopeless um, uh, just end of this cycle of reincarnation and then this joyful uh, reality of heaven that is, uh, is offered for all who will put their faith in Christ. What a difference Jesus makes. It was at the graveside of his dear friend named Lazarus that Jesus comforted Mar Martha with these words. He said, Thy brother shall rise again. Amen. And he's not talking about reincarnation, church. He's saying, he, listen, there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a time when he will rise again. 
Jesus reminded Martha that he had the authority to grant life. The next couple of verses later, he said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever believeth, liveth and believeth in me shall never die. What a great promise. But all of humankind must answer that last question. Believest thou this? Because the only way to heaven is not nirvana, not sitting under some sort of a tree that I can't pronounce the right name correctly. It's not anything like that or figuring out how to get your legs to fold up behind your ears. None of those things will save you, folks. The only thing that saves you is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, let's talk about God very, very briefly tonight. Buddhism does not teach the truth of a personal God. The Buddhist believes the world's problems serve no significant or meaningful, meaningful purpose in life and, and that pain and suffering are only to be endured. And this is, so, this is what I want to get to tonight because sometimes we struggle with why do bad things happen. Scripture clearly presents the truth of a very personal and very sovereign God who is intimately involved in the affairs of His creation. As believers... Our hope is in Him alone. The fact that God has, has set this world in motion, He's allowed evil to happen. We see these things that are going on, and sometimes we scratch our head, Lord, why does this happen? But I want to remind you in Genesis chapter 50. In the Old Testament, there was a character named Joseph, and he at times was a little bit of a character, but God used him in a mighty way. And he had been sold into slavery. Uh, he had been, uh, by his own brothers, it was... Uh, and, and then he was used of God uh, in the house of Potiphar. And then Potiphar, uh, his wife, accused him. He was uh, thrown in a, a prison. He told some dreams and he was forgotten for two years. And then uh, he was redeemed from that place at just the right time, at just the right moment. Because God knew that this young man would have to go through the fire to be used of him later. And in Genesis chapter 50 and verse number 20... Joseph's testimony of God's grace and God working out in these evil and all of the, the bad things that happen is a testimony that we can cling to today as well. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring it to pass that it is this day to save much people alive. Listen, sometimes we look at these bad things and we think, man, why in the world is God bringing these things in my life? I don't understand it. But let me just say that there are several reasons God allows suffering in the life uh, in our lives. First off, God has ordained suffering to purify the believer's life and hope. Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 through 8, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the un ungodly. For scarce, uh, scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man would some even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that where we yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see here, as, as God lays out in, in Romans chapter 5, that, that God is using these things to purify our lives, to work in our lives, to make us into that image of Christ. And I'm thankful when we go through the trials, God is working if we let him. I, oftentimes I go through trials and, I, and I, 
I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy trials. And so oftentimes I tell them, all right, Lord, whatever you're trying to teach me, let me learn quick. I don't want to go through this very long. Listen, there's physical, there's financial, there's relational difficulties. All of these things have a way of shifting our focus off of the temporal, off of these things on this earth and, and putting them back on the Lord. And there's a great tendency that we must fight. It's the tendency of becoming enamored with the things of this world. But trials and difficulties have a way of letting us love God and consider Him. Job's testimony was this in Job 121. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May that be our testimony. Secondly, we see that God has ordained suffering to deepen our dependence upon Him. Listen, we get, I don't know about you, but I can be very uh, independent at times. And, and in some ways, uh, I think it has to do with the fact that, you know, you grow up here and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You hear that? You probably told your kids that a few times. But, but here's the reality, is that God calls us to depend upon Him. When pain and suffering come, it serves to remind us that we desperately need the Lord and we are by no means self-sufficient. We can't do it on our own. And it was during Paul's greatest struggle in his ministry with his thorn in the flesh that Christ said this, these words in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said unto me, in the middle of my agony, in the middle of my pain, in the middle of all that I'm going through, my grace is sufficient for thee. Have you found that to be true yet? Have you gone through a time in your life where the, it was so severe, so uh, agonizing that you found that God's grace was sufficient? Nothing else in this world matters because God's grace was with you. He says, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What a glorious thing when we can learn to lean upon the Lord. The third reason God allows difficulties, trials, suffering in this world, so that we might be able to comfort others. You see, suffering is not only intended for our good, but for the good of others too. And Paul reminds us that Christ comforts us in all of our tribulations so that we might be able to comfort others in their trouble. 2 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verses 3 through 6 says, Blessed be God. Even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. By the comfort wherewith we ourselves were, are comforted of God, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effectual in the enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Listen, God doesn't want to waste our pain. He uses it not just for us, but for the benefit of the body of Christ. Fourthly, God allows suffering to deepen our desire for heaven. Boy, heaven sounds sweet, doesn't it? 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power of God may be of God and not of us. Trials are temporary in nature. Man, and, and in contrast to the eternal nature of heaven, we are so blessed here on this earth. And what Buddha couldn't comprehend because he didn't find Christ, 
He found only the hopeless, endless cycle of, of Hinduism. He came up with something else uh, that, that was basically never answered this question, why is there pain and suffering? Let me tell you, Christ has laid it out for us, and He offers us something better just than just the end of the cycle. He offers hope today. Hope in salvation, uh, a hope that is eternal in the heavens. And tonight, I remind you that God has made it available here this evening. Once again, I remind you that Jesus came to die for you. He came to come to this earth to make available salvation for all men. And if you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior tonight, He invites you to come and put your faith in Him. Would you bow your head with me?